Welcome to the Connected Communication Podcast, the show which explores how much of communication is nature and how much is nurture, sharing speaking secrets along the way. I'm your host, Christine Molani. What's the difference between talking at someone and talking with them? In today's episode, we're talking about turn-taking, resonance and rebound in conversation. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and they never seem to stop talking, making you think, oh, let me speak. I have a question. I didn't understand that part. Wait your turn and stop speaking over me. What's happening? You're dealing with a monologuer. Or maybe you've been the monologuer. It happens. Turn-taking in communication is incredibly important. It's different across cultures. The rules are different. Of course, I can only speak from the perspective of a Hiberno-English speaker, an English speaker from Ireland. I have experience of turn-taking in different cultures and countries. But instead of going into my monologue on that, we'll have a dialogue about it in future episodes with speakers from a variety of countries all over the world. When COVID hit, all of the different mechanisms through which we normally communicated were blocked. We moved to Zoom really quickly. What happened? Our ability to understand how to take turns and communicate using natural cues was lost, or at least inhibited. It became very difficult to manage turn-taking. Why? Think about it. When, for example, the technology went down, you lost signal. Somebody may have just been in the middle of saying something when the signal dropped. The natural cue in your brain to be able to respond was inhibited or interrupted. When the signal finally came back and they were able to finish what they were saying, there may have been so much of a time lapse you lost your pattern of response. This made managing taking turns much more difficult. Turn-taking in the brain has been researched in many different ways. I find quite fascinating, you may agree with me or not, the fact that linguists use birds to analyse different musical sounds, different rhythmical patterns and manners of communication. They are indeed finding that our brains might not be as dissimilar as we thought especially when it comes to turn-taking, resonance and rebound. Resonance in communication is very important. If you're a speaker or if you've studied the voice at all in the past, you'll know that our mouths, throats and nasal passages act as resonators. When we create a note, the air which comes out bounces around our resonators, reverberating creating what we call a sympathetic vibration or resonance in our voices. Think about when you ding a key of a piano and you open the top, then you press the pedal. What happens to the change in the sound? There's also energetic resonance. Have you ever heard someone speak and you know how passionate they are because the belief and the feeling resonates through their vocal tone? through their emotion, through their behaviour. This connection engages different parts of our brains 
and our hearts. Resonance in terms of turn-taking is slightly different, or so it has been found to be in research with birds. A study done in Ecuador on the plain-tailed wren identified how they manage the magical duets that they sing. They're precisely timed. In other words, the female and the partner both seem to know exactly when not to respond and when to respond to each other. What they found in the research is that there's a particular part of the brain in the birds where there is excitement or activity and inhibition. They work together to form a conversation of sorts when they sing. The female makes a sound or creates a syllable and she sends that out to the male. When the male hears it, a part of his brain is inhibited or blocked, stopping him from replying while her sound is active. When that sound finishes, the same part of the male's brain then activates and allows him to sing. In other words, it rebounds, producing the male syllable. His song then sends over to the female, repeating the process. Her brain is inhibited. She hears the signal, she listens to the sound. When it's finished, her brain reactivates and rebounds in response. So there's a resonance and rebound between the two of them, which creates a pattern of communication connection where they both seem to sing as one. And this is like, for example, two dancers performing a tango when they're completely in tune with each other's bodies or singers singing a harmonised duet. Their brains need to connect on a particular level for them to be able to create such a fluidity in performance and allow us to enjoy it. Well, that's a lovely bird story, Christine, you might be thinking. But what's that got to do with humans and communication? Let's think about it. Healthy conversation, respectful conversation, is two-way or multi-way if there are more than two people in the engagement. Being monologued at or spoken at without a chance to respond or engage can put the brain into what's called a threat state. And no doubt over the past few years you've heard about the fight, flight, freeze or fawn responses. It's like that. Someone monologuing at us can create a disconnect, reducing our sense of relatedness. If we have no chance to respond, our autonomy in the conversation might be reduced. Our status might be questioned. And maybe we feel a sense of uncertainty if we can't follow or ask questions to clarify what we've understood. All of that can seem very unfair. When we're feeling like that, we're not really listening properly or able to follow the conversation. Monologue is a single speaker. Dialogue is different. Many people, when they think of dialogue, think dia is related to two. But it doesn't mean two. Clark University has an excellent page titled What is Dialogue? quoting a number of different books. One in particular is William Isaac's Dialogue and the Art of Thinking Together. What he tells us is that the roots of the word dialogue come from Greek words, dia meaning through, and logos 
meaning word or meaning. In essence, he says, a dialogue is a flow of meaning. But it's more than that. Going back even further, the ancient meaning of the word logos meant to gather together. It suggested an intimate awareness of the relationships among things in the natural world. In this podcast, we're exploring the nature and nurture of communication. Taking it a bit further, dialogue, he says, is a conversation in which people think together in tandem. You don't take your own position as final. Listen to the possibilities being offered by other speakers in the engagement. Suspending your own opinions. It's a relationship. Just like the one between our songbirds. There are natural cues, natural responses that exist within us that are then nurtured depending on our cultural background, our environment, linguistic experiences, life experiences, traumas. There are many influences. In English, turn-taking is very important. It's as important in English to be mindful of the listener as it is of the speaker. Some of you might be listening thinking, well, that's not my experience of speaking to English speakers. Each to their own and everybody is an individual. Hopefully, some of you so-called native English speakers listening to this episode will learn a little bit about how to be better dialoguers. There are different components to turn-taking. Again, research talks about three elements. Taking the turn, holding the turn and yielding the turn. I would also add in here steering particularly in a communication engagement that involves more than two people. In taking the turn, we speak. We take it from the other person. Now, I don't mean we just steal it. It's yielded by them or given to us by them. Now, sometimes we might have to take it, to be fair. And holding the turn will then be when we are the one who is speaking. Steering is when, say for example, you've got three or four people in a communication engagement. One might be overtaking everybody else. A confident communicator will be able to pull from that one to steer the conversation towards the others. This is particularly important in communication across cultures. In many Asian cultures, for instance, they won't interrupt There'll be no taking of a turn unless the turn is given or afforded to somebody. Say I'm in a communication engagement with someone from Japan or China with an American and the American keeps talking and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to stereotype here. This can be an American, an Australian, a Brit, a Pole, Irish, anybody. That one person keeps talking and doesn't give any indication to the Chinese or Japanese, for example, person that it's their turn to speak. Now, they might say nothing at all in the conversation. In this case, I can steer the conversation towards them using particular phrases, mannerisms, behaviours. I may directly need to ask them for input. Note, this would depend on my position. If I'm a subordinate to a Japanese director, I may not have the rank to speak over anyone else and invite their opinion. If I do, I could lose face for my whole team. 
There are many different cues we can use in turn-taking. Let's talk about some of them now. It's important to speak so that others can understand. Being mindful not to overuse acronyms or use complex language and complex vocabulary that listeners may not be able to follow, especially if we've got a multilingual audience. There'll be different levels, different abilities to understand particular language sets and structures, depending on the level of proficiency. I also want to think about the non-verbal and verbal cues that I give. This is important particularly when considering neurodiverse brains. For instance, I mentor someone who has an autistic brain. They said to me when we first started working together, this is how my brain works. So I need you to communicate very simply and very clearly. They told me what they needed me to do. Sometimes I'll ask them what I need to do. In this example that we're doing here, how do you need me to communicate with you? It makes the conversation much simpler and clearer. In fact, using a brain-based conversation approach, I'll do this anyway. Seeking permission before I talk about anything particularly if I'm going down the road of probing or exploring what a person may or may not yet be ready to talk about. Not everybody is able to read speech cues or hear them. Across cultures, tone and meaning changes. It can be incredibly difficult to understand what is expected and being communicated, especially if only non-verbal patterns are being used. Some neurodiverse brains experience alexithemia, and the person can't feel the emotions of others. Therefore, empathy and compassion can be very difficult. It really bugs me, grinds my gears, as Peter might say in Family Guy, when I see these posts that say, have more empathy, be more compassionate, feel what other people are feeling. Not everybody can. Others experience aphantasia where a person can't imagine objects. Well, what does this matter, you might think? Say, for example, you're giving an example. And you say, imagine a horse or imagine a field. A person with aphantasia can't imagine a horse. They might know the concept of what a horse is. If you put a horse in front of them, they'd recognise it as a horse. But in their mind's eye, they're not able to see it. PTSD can also affect the brain. When someone is in trauma response, if they've been triggered particularly, future prospection is very difficult. Think about the Will Smith episode when he went up and slapped Chris Rock. In that moment, his brain was not able to separate from whatever trauma pumped the adrenaline that made him do that or consider what the outcome might be. Whether or not you believe it was staged, Let's imagine that it wasn't and he was moving on a trauma response. But what are some verbal and non-verbal speech cues? What did you just notice about my voice? Apart from the fact that it got a bit gravelly, I've been talking for a while. Did it go up or down? What does it mean when my voice goes down? For how long did I pause after my voice went down? What's the difference if my voice goes up? I hope you're saying to yourself now, oh yeah, there's a bit of finality in her voice there when it goes down. If my voice continually goes up, 
Not only will a listener never know if or when I'm going to finish, but they'll also likely question my authority or intelligence. Are you still listening? Let me repeat that. If my voice continually goes up, not only will a listener never know if or when I'm going to finish, but they will also likely question my authority or intelligence. We'll go into the up-down, up-speak idea and intonation in future episodes. But think about what you just heard. How likely would it be that you'd continue listening to this podcast if I spoke like that all the time? Pause is another key indicator. When I pause, I allow time for building rapport. I don't mean the French rapport here or rapport. (laughs) Sorry, French speakers, if I butchered that. I'm playing with words a little bit. I allow time for our reflection when I pause. The listener might be able to A, ask a question. Maybe they'll P, predict what I'm going to say next. All of this allows them to you understand. And finally, they can R, respond. Rapport, my rapport. When I pause, I allow time for reflection, for asking, for prediction, for understanding and for response. When I pause and downwardly inflect, I indicate to the person that I'm finished or I'm coming to a close. This is a speech cue. There are more on these speech cues, but it's enough for now. There are also cues related to tone, intonation and pace. I've done a few takes of this recording now and every time I go into them, it starts getting a bit too long. So I'm holding myself back. If you do want to jump into that learning now, go to phenomenalpresenters.com and join the masterclasses. Or listen to the next few episodes of the podcast and get a secret 50% discount to say thanks for joining the journey. Inflection, tone and intonation are what make English for me magical. You should be able to hear that coming across in my voice. If I go up or down in a single inflection or a double inflection or even, ooh, a triple inflection, you can read what's behind my voice, just in the sounds, without me giving you any words, depending on your capacity to hear. The Japanese call this kai. I think, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I'd have to check with someone. It stands for kuki yomenai. If you're from Japan or you speak Japanese listening to this, I invite you to message me somewhere with the correct pronunciation. The word, as I say, is kai, I believe, or ki maybe. When a person is kai or ki, they do not have a very good ability to read a room. A person who has the capacity to read the room or read the air, as Erin Meyer translated in her book, The Culture Map, is able to pick up on what is being implicitly communicated, to sense it or to hear it behind the words that are being said. In other words, they can sense in the atmosphere or from facial expression, gesture or 
the human behavior around them, what is not being said. Also, what is not being said when other words are being said. Being able to read the air or read the room is essential to being an effective communicator in Japanese and Chinese cultures of communication. One must be able to read the room. It's a great skill to learn. Again, we'll talk more about it in future episodes. Now, I don't know if my ability to read a room came from living in China for a year, or if it's something that I inherently developed, or nurtured into nature over my years of being interested in people and how they communicate. Now, actually, that's not entirely true. I am somewhat aware of where this ability developed. Part of it is what Gabor Mate would call the wisdom of my trauma. I learned how to read people, to keep myself safe in certain situations, so that I knew how to communicate and behave. I also picked up a lot of new behaviours in the different cultures I lived, worked in, nurturing them, making them part of my communication mannerisms. If reading a room isn't natural practice for you, may I recommend trying it. Sit back, observe the people around you. Watch how they communicate, particularly if you work in a different environment with communicators from all over the world. See how they sit. Watch their facial expressions. Watch their bodies. Look at how their eyes move. Do their shoulders shift forwards? Do they shift backwards? What does that indicate? Does it suggest interest or confusion? What different cultural responses can you notice in different people? When do they indicate that it's somebody else's turn to communicate? What do they indicate about people's level of comfort in a communication engagement? And this is possible online and offline. Earlier, I talked about the difficulty in managing turn-taking across Zoom. Reactions will differ across cultures and communicators, of course. But if people have their cameras on, there tends to be a readiness to participate and communicate. From folded arms, facial expressions and eyes, we can see how the mind seems to wander or think just by the way that people look up, look down and look into the camera. Chins might tilt, shoulders might turn, bodies might move forwards and backwards. There are many different ways to identify the nature of turn-taking in communication. When we allow ourselves to be open to it, and aware of it. So now, I yield my turn to you, listeners, and as we normally do, offer a challenge. This week, when communicating, notice how adept you are at yielding turns, holding turns, and taking turns. If it's necessary, how can you respectfully steer turns? What techniques can you use to steer conversations in a way that allows everybody to feel connected, feel related and feel involved, keeping the brain in that sense of reward, pumping the dopamine, connecting your communication? Please share your experiences and, if you like, teachings of how turn-taking is nurtured in your culture as a review, a comment on the podcast or in a community post if you're a member. As always, 
Thanks for listening. Don't forget to like, comment, share and subscribe. Until next time, Banak Tiagas Buyakas. For new listeners, that's Irish. For blessings and gratitude.